I'm going to read you an article that was uh, published in the Washington Post in late, well, mid-2022. And remember the Washington Post. This is a pretty old, established, trusted newspaper. Um, if you're old enough to remember, uh, it was the Washington Post that broke the, the water, Watergate scandal. So this is a pretty old, established paper. Here's what the article says. And I'll just tell you up front, it's going to depress you. So if you came in a good mood, prepare to be depressed. Here's what it says. A year-long legal battle over a contested election at a prominent Washington, D.C. area church appears to be over for now. On Friday, a Fairfax County, Virginia judge dismissed a lawsuit filed by dissident members of McLean Bible Church who sought to overturn the results of an election for church elders. <laughs> God bless them. These dissident, those dissident members argued that church leaders, including senior pastor David Platt, David Platt best-selling author, had violated the church's constitution. The suit was dismissed with prejudice. Rick Boyer... No, let me make sure I slow down and say that so you don't think it's somebody else. Rick Boyer, not Rick Boya, Rick Boyer, attorney for the plaintiffs in the lawsuit, said his client's plan to appeal. The dispute at McLean centered around a failed June 2021 election. So they're trying to overthrow an election in Washington, D.C. Can you believe it? The church's constitution requires that new elders receive 75% approval. And for the first time in McLean's history, a new group of elders failed to reach that margin. The election, it goes on, came amid simmering unrest at the church where political polarization in the wider church, in the wider culture, seeped into the congregation. Now, catch that phrase. The election came amid simmering unrest at the church where political polarization in the wider culture seeped into the congregation. A group of critics that run a Facebook group called Save McLean Bible Church they claimed that the church leaders had substituted critical race theory and social justice for biblical teaching. Rumors began to circulate. By the way, rumors is just another word for gossip. Rumors began to circulate around, around the church that Platt and other leaders planned to sell a church building to a local Muslim congregation for a mosque. <laughs> Following the first failed election, a second election was held in July 2021. This one where members had to sign their ballots, which critics said violated the church practice of using secret ballots. In that election, the elders were approved, which led to the dissident members to file the lawsuit. This past spring, it goes on, this past spring, hoping to resolve the dispute, McLean leaders decided to discard the results of the July 21 election. They organized a new election for elders in mid-June 2022 using secret ballots. All active members were allowed to vote. But the plaintiffs in the lawsuit objected, saying that anyone who joined the church after June of 2021 election should not be allowed to vote. Wade Burnett, pastor of McLean's leadership, said the congregation decided to move forward together in a difficult time. And he told the media that the church believes it will prevail if there's an appeal. Well, isn't that nice? Isn't that all warm and fuzzy? Doesn't that make you feel really nice about the church? Can you believe there's fighting taking place within a church? 
Who would have ever thought? Now, can you imagine if you're reading this article in the, if you, can you imagine if you're a member of this church and you're reading this article from the New York Post? You get the newspaper that day, you open it up, there's your church, front page news. And you're reading this about your church. And you know your next door neighbor is reading this about your church. The, the next door neighbor that you've been inviting to attend this church for the last six months, they're reading this paper. And then you know your coworkers, who you're going to invite to the Christmas Eve service. They're also reading this, this newspaper article. Well, that's going to make for some very interesting conversations, will it not? Lawsuits in the church, infighting in the church, backbiting in the church. Can such a thing be? Well, turn with me to 1 Corinthians. Because infighting and suing one another is exactly what Paul addresses in our text this morning. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6. How can such a thing be? And how should a Christian respond? So 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And as you're turning, let me remind you that we've been saying for the last couple of weeks that the characteristics between the Corinth of Paul's day and the America of our days are so dang similar. They're almost identical because the Corinthians were, like many Americans are, unapologetically sexually immoral. And we saw this last week as there was a case of ongoing, blatant, unrepentant sexual immorality. A incestuous relationship between a son and his stepmother and his stepmom. And the church didn't do anything about it. And therefore, by not dealing with it, they actually condoned it. And therefore, Paul had to write to him and say, what are you guys doing? What are you doing? Have you lost your ever-loving minds? You're just going to let this thing continue to go on and not actually deal with it? This man, he says, he's unrepentant. And that's the key thing. He's unrepentant. He needs to be removed from the church. And he needs to be removed from the church with the hopes that his sinful nature will be destroyed so that his soul might be saved on the day of judgment. And that's the goal, by the way, of any church discipline. That the, sh the sheer shock of it will cause the person to reevaluate their life choices so that they're brought back into a vibrant relationship with the Lord. Remember, any and all church discipline should never be punitive. It should always be restorative. And so Paul's saying, you've you got to deal with this, this guy. You can't just let him con continue. You've got to boot him out of the church with the hopes that it'll shock him back into his senses. So the Corinthians were unapologetically, just like many Americans are, uh, unapologetically sexually immoral. Secondly, the Corinthians were, and many Americans are, uh, incredibly competitive. And we sometimes never actually ask the question, is competition necessarily a good Thing. It's, a, it's a question that sometimes should be asked. But remember, the Corinthians, they loved competition. And I've told you this before. Um, in Corinth, every four years, or every two years, sorry, they hosted the Isthmus Games. And the Isthmus Games were second in size only to the Olympic Games. And the Corinthians, again, I've told you this before, and I'm sure you remember everything I say. <laughs> Uh, the Corinthians were the first people to introduce the gladiator games. The gladiator games started in Corinth because, again, they loved competition. 
And Corinth was the first place to introduce athletic events, athletic competitions for women. And that ethos of, of competition, which permeated the city, seeped its way into the church. And everything became a competition within the church, including how good the pastors were. They were ranking their pastors. They, how it affected everything, including how they viewed their pastors. So the Corinthians were, and many times Americans are, unapologetically sexually immoral. Second, they're incredibly competitive. Third, the Corinthians were, and many Americans are, highly materialistic. Highly materialistic. By the way, did you know America's collective credit card debt is $1 trillion? $1 trillion, um, which tells you how materialistic Americans are. And it's one of the reasons why, by the way, starting in January, we're going to be starting a community group um, using Dave Ramsey's Financial Peace University to try to help families get control of their debt, get control of their budgets, um, help, hopefully help people's families within the body of Christ get, help, get a hand on their fi- handle on their finances. And the Corinthians, now the Corinthians are very similar to us they were incredibly motivated by the making of a buck. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, of course, being motivated to make a buck. There's nothing wrong with that. And so many people came to Corinth because it was a commercial center. Remember, it had a port on either side of it. It was a commercial center, and it was known as Rich Corinth because people knew they would move there specifically because they knew they could become, they, it would be lucrative for their business if they moved to Corinth. And because the Corinthians were, and Americans are, competitive and materialistic, when something doesn't go as planned, when your rights are infringed upon, or your freedom is inhibited, what's the result? What will always be the result? When an ethos of competition and materialism are mixed together, and your rights are infringed upon. What's going to be the result of that? Each and every time. Litigation. Litigation will be the result. And the Greeks were every bit as litigious as a people. They were every bit as litigious as a people as people are in our country. They were every bit, every bit as willing to go to court as we are in our country. And think about that, because 70% of the world's lawyers reside in the United States. 70% of the world's, did you know that? 70% of the world's lawyers reside in the United States. And by the way, um, a, a, great many, a, a great many of the lawyers are doing a really good job. They're doing a really good, legitimate work on behalf of lawyers. Not all of them. A lot of times, there's this attitude that all lawyers do a, a poor job and they're just in it for the buck. And that's not necessarily true. There's a many, many, many good lawyers. But the Greeks were every bit as litigious as we are. One commentator put it like this. One commentator, he describes the Greeks' love for litigation by saying this. The Greeks were naturally and characteristically a litigious people. The law courts were, in fact, one of their chief amusements and entertainments. The Greeks were, in fact, famous or notorious for their love of going to court. Is that not true? And that's, that is just like our country. We love going to court. Um, we love it so much, we have nighttime TV programs on every channel that's about courtroom dramas. Have you noticed that? And anytime a new John Grisham book comes out, I am in line to buy it because we love courtroom dramas. 
And, and, and the Greeks were just like us. And just like last week, when Paul had to rebuke the Corinthian church for letting sexual, sexual immorality seep into the church, so too this morning, he's going to have to speak into a situation because they were letting the culture's ways seep into the church again. He got a report that there were some Christians in the church who were regularly taking advantage of their poorer brothers and sisters in Christ by taking them to church. And so what Paul's going to do is he's going to bring a very strong rebuke. This is the entire passage is one of rebuke. So he will bring a very strong rebuke to the Corinthian church for allowing the litigious nature of the culture to seep into the body of Christ, which when that happens, it will automatically hinder its unity and love and it will undermine its witness in the world. So with that, let's get into the text. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we're going to work verses uh, 1 through one through 11 this morning. And what will Paul say? Here's what he's going to say. He's going to rebuke them by saying four things, and this will form the outline of, of today's message. So if you're a note taker, you'll want to take note. Here's what he's going to say. He's going to rebuke them by saying these four things. First of all, in verse 1, you're fighting with one another rather than living graciously with one another. You're fighting with one another rather than living graciously with one another. Second, uh, verses two through six, he's going to say you're squandering this opportunity rather than seizing it. You're squandering this this opportunity for growth. Uh, You're squandering this rather than seizing it. Third, verses seven through eight, you're thinking like a Corinthian rather than a Christ follower. You're thinking like a Corinthians. They were, much be- they were much better at being Corinthians than they were at being Christians. Why? Well, here's the fourth thing, verses 9 through 11. Because you're forgetting your identity in Christ rather than rehearsing it. You're forgetting your identity in Christ rather than rehearsing it. That's in verses 9 through 11. So, First, Paul will rebuke him by saying, you're fighting with one another rather than living graciously with one another. Look at what he says. Verse 1, he says, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the law, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Paul, he hears about this situation in Corinth, and he says, so you people who are so unwilling to deal with blatant sexual immorality in the church, but you're oh so quick to take one another to court. And that before unbelievers. He goes, you're not bringing it before the church, you're going to the court before unbelievers. And you see, in the word word dare there, you see in verse one, dare? In the Greek, the word dare actually starts the sentence to emphasize it. In essence, Paul's saying, how dare, how dare you treat one another like, just like the world? How dare you treat one another in the, in the worldly ways? You're airing your dirty laundry in public. What are you doing? Now, please listen. This is not a call to sweep everything under the rug, right? Paul's not calling us to sweep anything under the rug. He's not calling us to pretend that Christians are wonderfully holy all the time because they're not. This is a call to live wisely and graciously with brothers and sisters in the Lord. Paul's concern, for his concern is for their unrighteousness before God and before the world. 
their actions by dragging each other to court, uh, their actions damage the unity and the love within the church. And it hinders their witness in the world. And it demonstrated a, a failure to exercise, exercise the wisdom of God, which is a far greater, he's already made this case, which is a far greater wisdom than the wisdom of the world. Now listen, it's not that Paul didn't trust the courts. He did, it's not that he didn't trust that the courts couldn't administer justice. It's that the relationships within the body of Christ, how we treat one another, how we love one another, how we deal with one another when there's disagreements, that's of utmost importance to the body of Christ. And the Corinthians, they were so quickly running to the courts. It, it, what it means is, what it, what it shows is, despite what they may confess with their lips, it hasn't really affected their day-to-day -day lives. He says, you're fighting with one another. Rather than living graciously with one another, rather than living wisely with one another, you're spending all this time backbiting. You're spending all this time fighting with one another. He says, what are you doing? So he gives them this admonition. Now let me say three things before we move on. Three things about this admonition. Uh, what it isn't. Because sometimes we'll, people will read this text and they'll say, well, look at what Paul says. I can't ever do these things. So let me say three things this admonition isn't. Okay. First of all, this isn't a prohibition from ever using the justice system. Please make sure you hear me on this. This isn't a prohibition from ever using the justice system because Paul himself did. Paul himself used the justice system. The same man who wrote these words also said, I appeal to Caesar in Acts chapter 28. He trusted the governing authorities, Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 6. He trusted that the, go the governing authorities were established by God and that he could receive justice. And therefore, he appealed to Roman ju justice, but only when he was in defense of his gospel ministry. Only when he thought there was an opportunity that they could take away his privilege to preach the gospel is when he appealed to the courts. So this, this admonition does not, it's not, it's not a, he's not forbidding all litigation under all circumstances. Because some of you are, a, some of this is not just individual, right? Some of you are part of a company and your company may be getting sued by another company. And it doesn't mean you can't go to court in those situations. You may be named in a lawsuit even though you had very little to do with the situation. So this isn't a prohibition from ever using the justice system. Second, this isn't about criminal cases. Please note that. This is not about criminal cases. This is about civil cases. You see in verse 1, if you're in the ESV, it says, when one of you has a grievance against another. Or if you're in the NIV, it says, if one of you has a dispute with one another. That's a Greek idiom for civil litigation. And you see the same thing if you look down to verse 7. It says, why not rather be defrauded? And again, that's, that's civil language, like property or, or money. So it's not a criminal case. So this is not a prohibition from ever going to court over a criminal matter. And Paul, Paul would have been horrified if he found out that people used this passage as a pretext for cover-ups or for institutional silence or for the protection of abusive leaders when there is credible and serious accusations made against them. So this is not about criminal cases at all. 
And by the way, let me put a fine point on this. Um, if you come to me and tell me that you've committed a crime, I will give you about a 30-minute head start. Just, just that, about a 30-minute head start with the hopes that you'll turn yourself in and I won't have to drive past Coastal um, because I hate going past Coastal. So if you come to me and say, hey, I've committed this crime, do not think that I will absolve you. The Lord will. He will forgive you, but you still have to deal with the consequences. So you've got to go and turn yourself in. So this isn't about criminal cases at all. It's, it's, it's a, first, it's not a prohibition from ever using the justice system. Second, it's not about criminal cases. Third, this is also not about litigation with non-Christians. Please note that. This is not about litigation with non-Christians. Again, you may be named in a lawsuit. And if you're a part of a company, if you do business in any, at any point in America, you're going to be sued. It's just, that's the price of doing business in America. Um, you're going to be sued. You may actually have to bring, bring litigation against someone else who's not shaped by the life of Christ and Christian values and ethics. So it's not about, uh, it's not about litigation against non-Christian. This passage is about brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. Brothers and sisters in the body of Christ who have a dispute with one another. Maybe you hired someone from the body of Christ. Maybe you hired a Christian plumber and they did a really poor job. And now you have a dispute. Well, how will that be dealt with? How will that dispute be settled and handled amongst brothers and sisters in the Lord, whose aim should be to represent Christ well, to maintain unity in the body of Christ, and a good witness in the world? So how will that, those type of situations, how will those type of situations be dealt with? And Paul, when he hears about this, he's shocked. He just can't believe it. Because the, the Christians, the, the church in Corinth, was fighting with one another rather than living wisely and graciously with one another. And by doing so, they damaged the unity and the love within the church, and they hindered their witness in the world. So he says, you're fighting. Verse 1, he says, you're fighting with one another rather than living graciously. Second, in verses uh, 2 through 6, what he's going to say is this. He says, you're squandering this opportunity. You're squandering this opportunity. He sees it as an opportunity. This dispute. Do you, by the way, do you see your disputes as opportunities? <laughs> we never do. We think this is horrible. This isn't an opportunity. This is a terrible thing. He says, no, this is actually an opportunity for you to practice. Practice what? Well, I'll see you in a second. He says, you're squandering this opportunity rather than seizing it. And they're squandering it because, first, they're not embracing their destiny. They're not embracing their destiny as the people of God. Look at verse 2. He says, or do you not know that the saints, so that so the saints, you and I, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And by the way, the word judge there, it means uh, essentially you're going to preside over. You're going to rule and reign with Christ. He says, don't you know, don't you know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try to hear trivial cases? Do you not know that we're to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do, you why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? He's saying, he's reminding the Corinthians and challenging them and us to embrace our destiny as God's people. Paul says, your destiny as the people of God 
is to actually participate with God in judging the world, including the angels. Well, that is quite, quite a destiny, and it's quite a statement that Paul gets. Where in the world does he get it? Well, he gets it all over the place in the Scriptures. Daniel chapter 7. Let me read it to you. Daniel chapter 7, verse 27. Uh, we, we read this. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. Matthew chapter, nine, uh, Matthew chapter 19, Jesus says to his disciples, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed me at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man will sit upon his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And John, in the book of the Revelation, in, John chap or in uh, Revelation chapter 20, John sees this, he says, And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And they came to life, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And Paul, he's, he's hearing that these guys are taking their cases before the outside world, and he's saying, what are you guys doing? Don't you, don't you know what your destiny is? You're going to judge the world. You're going to judge the angels. I can't believe I have to remind you of this. He says, you're squabbling over everyday affairs when your destiny is to join the Lord and preside over the kingdom of God. He says, why are you not embracing your destiny? And then he says, not only are you not embracing your destiny, you're not utilizing your resources. Look at verse 5. He says, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? Remember, the Corinthians, they boasted them, they, they prided themselves and they boasted in their wisdom. And he says, are you telling me there's nobody wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? Just like he did last week, Paul uses irony here. He says, you guys who think you're oh so wise, you're telling me there's nobody within the body of Christ who's wise enough to handle and to settle this dispute? And the, the implication is, of course there is. Of course there is. Why would there be? Well, because Paul's already told us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16, that it's within the body of Christ and only within the body of Christ where the mind of Christ is given. It's to spirit-filled people that is given the mind of Christ. Because only believers, now think about it, only believers have real knowledge of God. Only believers have the mind of Christ. Only believers have the Holy Spirit within them. And Paul's presupposition and my presupposition is that within every church, that within every single body of Christ resides everything that's needed in that moment to express the love and the will of God. And Paul's saying, you're not utilizing the resources that Christ has given you. Within your church right now is everything you need in that moment to represent Christ well within, within any type of situation. He said, this is what should be taking place. You're not utilizing your resources. You haven't embraced your destiny as God's people. You're not utilizing the resources that Christ has given you. So let's get practical. practical. How do you do this if you have a dispute? Let's say you have a dispute with another brother or, body, or another brother or sister in the body of Christ. Maybe it's a property dispute. 
or maybe it's a financial dispute with a brother or sister who attends the church, and you really feel, like honestly, deep down, you really feel like they've sinned against you. Well, what do you do? How do you handle it? Well, hopefully, first of all, you follow the pattern of Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17, where hopefully you go to that person privately and you explain the situation as clearly as you see it and you try to bring resolution to it. And if that doesn't work, then you bring two or three more, more mature Christians into the situation and again, you try to bring resolution to it. And if that doesn't work, then you bring it to the elders. And both parties, both parties, if they're Christians, agree to arbitration. They'll agree to the arbitration where, both, where they'll agree that they'll abide by the elders' decisions. And if your elders are smart, they'll identify and they'll use specially gifted members of the congregation to bring forth the wisdom of God into the situation. And we, by the way, we do this from time to time. Um, usually, living where we do in a rural environment, it has to do with property issues. It has to do with um, property lines and, and rights of ways and um, water rights and easements and these type of property, property issues, things of that nature. We had a situation like this not too long ago. And thankfully, one of my good friends at TCF is a lawyer, an uh, excellent lawyer. And so I bounced the situation off of him and I said, hey, give me... Give me what you see here. I laid out the situation before him. I said, I don't know property law. I'm a pastor. Um, tell me what you see here. And he explained the situation to us. But the key, now listen, the key here is for the Christians within the body of Christ to say better for the unity of the church and better for the witness of Christ if we lay this before the elders and we abide by their decision rather than bring this out into the open before the public. Because there's going to be disagreements amongst Christians from time to time, in case you haven't noticed that. <laughs> there's going to be disagreements amongst Christians and within the church. And the catalyst for bringing healing, the catalyst for healing fractured relationships are people who have listening hearts and the patience to hear both sides of the situation and then bring the mind of Christ to the given situation. That's the key. That's the goal. And so Paul, he rebukes the Corinthian church by saying, first of all, you're fighting with one another rather than living wisely and graciously with one another. Second, you're squandering this opportunity rather than, than seizing it. And now, in verses 7 and 8, what he's going to say is, you're thinking more like a Corinthian than you are a Christ follower. You're thinking more like a Corinthian than a Christ follower, which meant they're being shaped by the culture more than the way of Christ. Look at what he says, verse 7. He says, to have, a, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Now think about that. Think of what he just said, because the Corinthians love to win. They were competitive as all get out. He says, to have lawsuits at all, it's already a defeat for you. Why not suffer wrong? Hmm. Are there, these are some of the hardest uh, instructions that Paul gives us. Why not suffer wrong? Everything in us says, what? Are you out of your mind? Why not suffer wrong? Why not be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers and sisters. 
Paul tells them, he's, verses 7 and 8, he says, your thinking is being shaped more by the Corinthian culture around you than Christ's teaching and his example before you. And remember, again, the Corinthians were all about winning. And if they felt they were wrong, they went all in. They were going to go to the mats on it. If they felt their rights were infringed upon, um, they were going to sue you to kingdom come. And Paul, he rebukes the church by saying, you're thinking more like a Corinthian. And he would rebuke the church of America and say, you're thinking more like an American. You're a better American than you're a Christian. You're thinking more like a Corinthian than you are a Christ follower. Why? Well, because Jesus is perfectly okay to be wronged. Matthew chapter 5, I won't make you turn there, but listen to Jesus' words. Listen to what Jesus taught. He said, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist one who is evil. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your coat, let him have your cloak as well. So Jesus taught this principle, but more than that, he also lived it. Peter, in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, he writes this. He says, when they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Boy, that's hard, isn't it? I mean, you hear, you hear the words of Christ. You see the example of Christ, and you think, whoa, that's incredibly hard. Because everything in our culture and everything in the Corinthian culture said, you must fight this injustice. You must win at all costs. You must not have your rights infringed upon. You must not suffer any type of wrong. But the Scripture says, because God in Christ has forgiven each of us of such great sin against him, no Christian, no Christian then has the right to be unforgiving especially of a brother or sister in Christ. But this is what they were doing in Corinth. They were taking everybody to court. And rather than thinking like Christ, uh, rather than thinking and living like Christ, they were thinking and living just like the Corinthian culture. And now what Paul's going to say in verses 9 through 11, Paul's going to say, all of this is true. Everything I just laid out is true because, here's verses 9 through 11, because you're forgetting your identity in Christ rather than rehearsing it. And when you're in a dispute, the thing you need to do more than anything else is actually rehearse who you are in Christ. He says, you're, you're forgetting your identity in Christ rather than rehearse it. Look at what he says, verse 9. He says, or do you not know that the unrighteous, some of your translations will say uh, wrongdoers, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And, and this is such an interesting play on words because in verse 7, what does Paul say? He says, why not suffer wrong? And then in verse 8, he says, you yourselves, you wrong and defraud others. And now in verse 9, he says, don't you know that wrongdoers won't inherit the kingdom of God? You see what Paul's just done? He's trapped him. He's completely trapped him. He says, why not be wronged? Oh, but you yourself wrong and defraud others. And don't you know that wrongdoers won't actually inherit the kingdom of God? He's completely trapped him. He's saying, you know what you're actually doing? You're acting just like the world around you. 
And then what he'll do is he'll give this long list of worldly behavior. Look at what he says. It's kind of an ad hoc list, but it, it hits each and every one of us. He says, don't you know, verse 9, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, and we talked about that last week, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Um, he gives us this ad hoc list, and some of the things we look at him and say, well, that's a really bad sin, and some of the other ones, like greedy, we think, oh, that's just a, that's not such a terrible sin. Paul says, oh, yeah, they are. He says, all the sins are the same. There's different degrees of devastation, no doubt, but the sins are the same. They're, they're all guilty. You're, you're guilty of all of these things. But then, the key verse, the key verse, verse 11, and such were some of you. And notice that's in the past tense. He goes, you may be practicing some of these behaviors right now, but positionally in Christ, uh, that's not who you are. That's not your real identity. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. Hmm. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by the Spirit of our God. Paul says, this is what you were. This is what you were. And then he uses three terms to remind them of their identity now. And it's, he says, I have to remind you of your identity right now because you've gotten lost. You've gotten lost. You've gotten off track. You got out into the world and you've gone astray. It's kind of like the great theological movie, The Lion King. Remember The Lion King? I don't care which version you watched. Uh, the newer version is pretty good, but the old version, still my preference. Um, it's kind of like the Lion King. When Simba goes out into the world and he goes astray, you remember what has to happen? Do you? Mufasa comes to him in a vision. And you remember what Mufasa says? He says, you've forgotten who you are because you've forgotten me. You are more than you've become and then he says, remember who you are. And this is essentially what Paul's doing here. He's saying, remember who you are. Remember your identity. Because your identity, your identity shapes how we see ourselves. Our identity shapes how we see ourselves and how we relate to the world. Is that not true? Each and every one of us. Our identity shapes how we see ourselves and how we relate to the world. And Paul says, this is how you used to be. But this is who you are now. This is who your identity is now. He has to remind them of his identity. And look at what he says. Look at the three terms he uses. He says, you were washed. He says, you were washed. And that speaks of regeneration. That speaks of regeneration. In Titus chapter 3, um, Paul puts it like this. In Titus chapter 3, I won't make you turn there. But jot it down and look it up over lunch. Because it's, it's some of the best scripture in all of the, all of the Bible. Titus chapter 3, Paul says like this. He says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Now catch this. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, 
but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And Paul reminds me, he has to remind me, he says, you've been born again, regeneration. That's the idea of, of new life being given to you. You've been washed, you've been cleansed, you've been born again by the grace of God. He says, you were washed. You have to remember the grace of God that saved you. But then he tells him, second word, you see there? In verse 11, you were washed, you were sanctified. You were sanctified. And sanctification means having your character continually transformed so that we become more and more like Christ. As we cooperate with the Holy Spirit, he works in us. As we cooperate with the work of the Holy Spirit, through the, through the reading of scriptures, through meditation, through prayer, through all of these things, the Holy Spirit works in us and transforms us so that we're better able to represent Christ's love and grace and wisdom. And he says, and you were sanctified. You were regenerated through the washing. You were regenerated. You were sanctified. And then, lastly, verse 11, he says, you've been justified. Justified. Well, justified is a forensic term which means it's a legal term. And this is all talking about court cases. He says, and you've been justified. What does that that mean? That means because Christ has paid your penalty and he's bore your guilt and you've put your faith in him, when God looks upon you, he declares you to be righteous. And Paul says, this is the identity you now have. And it's yours in, last part of verse 11, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And now listen, when you're in a dispute with another brother or a sister in Christ, you, you know what you have to do? You have to rehearse gospel realities to yourself. Because in the moment, you're not thinking clearly. Because everything in you is well, if you're in a dispute with another person, do you feel good about that other person? Or are you pretty ticked off at that person and your blood is boiling? When your blood is boiling, you, know, you have to remind yourself of gospel realities. You have to tell yourself, you have to remind yourself of your identity in Christ. Otherwise, you'll tend to think just like the culture around you. And instead of forgiving that person, you'll want to cancel them, just like our culture does all the time. So Paul tells them, the reason you're not solving your disputes, the reason you're taking, you're taking each other to court is because you're forgetting your identity in Christ rather than rehearsing it. And the account ends right there. And we'll do the same. Okay, here's what I want you to see. I want you to see the deep resources that the gospel gives you. Because the gospel gives you deep resources for dealing with life in this age, for dealing with all of the hardships, all of the disputes of this age. So let me give you three Um, three things the gospel gives you for dealing with life in this age. First one, it gives you a community to help you think straight. What does the gospel give you? It gives you a community to help you think straight. Again, I don't know if you've noticed, but when you're in a dispute, you don't always think straight. And if you're in a really heated dispute, and it's been a protracted dispute, um, you're not thinking straight, frankly. Because you're emotionally involved in the situation. And you're not thinking straight. Um, You're just not. 
you're, you're emotionally invested in the argument and you want to win the argument. It's the reason why when another person is trying to explain something to, to you, you're not actually listening to them. You're already forming your response. Have you ever noticed that? If you're married, you know what I'm talking about. Now take that on a business, a business level. You're not thinking straight because you're emotionally invested in your work and in your life and this is how you provide for your family. You're not thinking straight. And what the gospel gives you, it gives you a community to, to help you think straight. What the gospel gives you is a community who's impartial. And you need impartiality. You need, it gives you a community that's impartial and isn't just trying to get the win for you, but is actually earnestly seeking to try to help you have the mind of Christ in a given situation. That's, honestly, that's wonderful. It's actually really a wonderful uh, a wonderful thing that the gospel gives you. It gives you a community because life isn't always easy. It's not always clear what the right answers are. There's a lot of gray. And so we need, and we have available to us in the gospel, we need a community to help, to help us think straight. And we actually have that given to us through the gospel. We have a gospel community that will help us think straight when everything around us is swirling about. And we'll say, let me hear the situation. Let me pray with you. Let's hear the situation. And, and let us bring truth to this situation. So it gives you a community to help you think straight. Second, it gives you the flexibility to look for the best in others rather than assume the worst. Now listen to that. It gives you the flexibility to look for the best in others rather than assume the worst. Why? Well, because they're really brothers and sisters in the Lord. The, it, remember, this is a dispute amongst Christians. So rather than thinking the worst of the other person, you're able to actually think the best of the other person because they're really a brother and sister in the Lord and you're growing in sanctification together. It's not that one of you has got it all figured out and the other doesn't. It's that you're both growing in, in uh, sanctification. And this dispute that you're in right now, it may be the Lord's plan to help knock off the rough edges in you and in them. It may be the Lord's plan to knock off the, the smooth off, smooth out the rough edges in you and in them, to cause both of you to think and to live more like Jesus. And when you're in a dispute, or when you're in a difficult patch with another brother and sister from the body of Christ, you got to remind yourself when it's another brother and sister in the Lord, you got to remind yourself this isn't just a business partner who's trying to get over on me. This is a blood bought brother and sister in the Lord. And though we're in a disagreement right now, but because they're really my brother or sister in the Lord, I'm going to look for the best in them rather than assuming the worst. And I hope that they're going to do the same with me. And we're going to work this out to the best of our ability, and we're going to remain in relationship with one another. Does that make sense? So the gospel gives you flexibility to see the best in others. Third thing it gives you is it gives you the ability. Now, listen to this. This is the best one. It gives you the ability to actually forgive others. The gospel gives you an ability to actually forgive others even when they've really wronged you. The gospel gives you a profound freedom to forgive someone who has really wronged you. Why? Well, listen to C.S. Lewis. Lewis, in uh, 1947, he wrote an essay on forgiveness. And the essay's, um, it's in the book, The Weight of Glory. It's the, the essay's title is On Forgiveness. 
it's amazing because we all know C.S. Lewis was incredibly creative, and he titles this essay about forgiveness, On Forgiveness, so not a very creative name. But listen to what he writes here. Uh, the essay, in, in it, he deals with the problem of forgiving other people. And there is a problem with forgiving other people, not just excusing away their behavior, but really forgiving them. So listen to what he says. He says, when it comes to a question of forgiving other people, you have to remember forgiving does not mean excusing. Many people think, seem to think that it does. They think that if you ask them to forgive someone who has cheated or bullied them, you're trying to make out that there was really no cheating or bullying. But if that were so, there would be nothing to forgive. The difference between this situation and the one in which you are asking God's forgiveness is this. In our own case, we accept, we ex in our own case, we accept excuses too easily. In other people's, we do not accept them easily enough. As regards to my own sins, it is a safe bet, though not a certainty, that the excuses are not really so good as I think. <laughs> is that not true of yourself? Let me read it again. As regards to my own sins, it is a safe bet, though not a certainty, that the excuses are not really so good as I think. As regards to other men's sins against me, it is a safe bet, though not a certainty, that the excuses are better than I think. One must therefore begin by attending to everything which may show that the other man was not so much to blame as we thought. That's thinking better of the other person. Let me read it again. One must therefore begin by attending to everything which may show that the other man was not so much to blame as we thought. But even, but even if he is absolutely fully to blame, we still have to forgive him. And even if 99% of his apparent guilt can be explained away by really good excuses, the problem of forgiveness begins with the 1% of guilt that is left over. To excuse what can really produce to excuse what can really produce good excuses is not Christian charity. It's only fairness. He says if there's really a good excuse, then just to excuse it, that's not really that's not really Christian charity. All that is is fairness. But then he goes on, he says, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable, because God in Christ has forgiven the inexcusable in you. Is that not good? Is that not good? Now listen, do you see what the gospel gives you? The gospel gives you an ability, a profound freedom to forgive the inexcusable in others and to maintain relationship with them. Why? Well, because God in Christ has forgiven the inexcusable in you in order to maintain the relationship. Now, now look at what everything the gospel gives you. The gospel gives you a community to help you think straight. It gives you a flexibility when you're in a dispute to think the best of the other person rather than assuming the worst. And it gives you the ability, the profound freedom to actually forgive another person even when they've really wronged you. So ask yourself this question. What is there not to like, what is there not to like about the gospel message? If this is what the gospel actually gives you for life in this age, a community in order to help you think straight and to handle the hardships of life, the flexibility, not to assume the worst about another person, but to think the best of them, and the profound ability, the profound freedom to actually forgive another person who has really wronged you because in Christ, God has forgiven you of everything. What is there not to like about the message of the gospel? Nothing. Nothing.
And if that's the case, you know what you should do? You should give your life to the Lord this morning. You should give your life to the Lord, asking him to forgive you of your sins, trusting him that he's your Lord and your Savior, that he will forgive anyone and everyone the moment they repent of their sins. And then what you should do is be baptized. And we have a baptism right after church. Just follow the people out as they're leaving, and there's a little pool out there, and you'll be dunked in it. And you'll come up out of it washed. Part of his community, part of his family. Washed and cleansed, regenerated, new life. Amazing. So let's pray. And when I'm done praying, there'll be some folks up here who'd be happy to pray with you. If you have anything going on in your life you need prayer for. Father, we thank you for these hard passages. We thank you that in the book of 1 Corinthians, nothing is swept under the rug. It all has to be brought out to be considered and to show that the gospel provides better resources than anything else that the world has to offer. There's all sorts of narratives in the world, but the one true narrative, the really great narrative, is the story of the gospel, of how we have wronged God because of our own sin. We have deliberately done things in our hearts, our minds, our words, our actions, our attitudes that go against God's word, go against God's ways, and we've wronged you. And yet, in Christ, because you have came and lived among us and you lived as we were supposed to live and died the death we deserve to die, the moment we come to you in repentant faith, you will forgive us of all of our sin. And more than that, you will give us new life in your name. And you will implant the Holy Spirit within us so that we begin to live and to think and to see the world and to love one another as Christ has loved us. We thank you for these realities, Lord, and we do pray that we would find our identity in Christ and in him alone. And Father, as, as uh, we go and we watch a baptism here in a moment, we pray that those who are going under the water and coming up that you would guard their hearts and their minds in Christ Jesus, that you would be with them, that uh, the body of Christ would love them well and would help them grow into Christ-likeness. We trust you for these things, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.